Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding, who set its measurements since you know? Or who stretched the line on it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy, Welcome to Good Heavens, a podcast about how the heavens declare the glory of God. Woo! Oh my God! Oh my God! Oh my God! That's the most amazing thing I've ever seen in my life. What you just heard were crowds of cheering people gazing in amazement at the total solar eclipse, which occurred from coast to coast across the central United States in August of 2017. The sun is 400 times larger than the moon, but the moon is 400 times closer to the earth, thus making the sun and moon look equal in size and enabling the moon to completely block out the solar disk from time to time. The sun's apparent motion in the sky and the visible planets all travel along an arc in the sky, an interstate highway of sorts known as the ecliptic. If you were to go outside and periodically mark the position of the sun from its rising to its setting, you would be able to trace out this pathway. The moon's orbit around Earth also follows the ecliptic, but at times ranges about 5 degrees above or below the ecliptic. That means at certain times of the year, the moon crosses the ecliptic. It is at certain times when the moon crosses the ecliptic that solar and lunar eclipses occur. If you live in parts of Oregon, Nevada, Utah, Colorado, New Mexico, and Texas, you are in for a real celestial treat tomorrow, tomorrow being Saturday, October the 14th, as of this broadcast, as there will be an annular eclipse occurring, beginning in Oregon at about 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time, ending in the Gulf of Mexico just before noon Central Standard Time. You can Google the annular eclipse of 2023 to see if you are in the path of the event. Here in the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex, we will be in the 80% zone. Folks in the San Antonio area will be able to see the full annular eclipse. An annular eclipse is when the moon is further away from the Earth, thus making it appear a little smaller and thus unable to completely cover the sun. What then surrounds the moon is a ring of fire and is quite a spectacular sight to see. But if you do try and observe it, make sure you take all the necessary precautions and not gaze directly at the sun without proper eye protection.
Okay, so eclipses are spectacular astronomical events that cause people to cheer and experience the awe and wonder of the heavens. But why all the cheering? Why all the science behind studying these events? What ultimately is the cause of these events? What is the ultimate purpose for eclipses? Is there even a purpose for them? In her 2020 book, The End of Everything, Astrophysically Speaking, astrophysicist Dr. Katie Mack believes that, quote, at some point, in a cosmic sense, it will not have mattered that we ever lived. The universe will, more likely than not, fade into a cold, dark, empty cosmos, and all that we've done will be utterly forgotten. Where does that leave us now? End quote. It leaves us at least making a few observations about Dr. Mack's rather bleak assessment of our existence. First, nothing she says is based upon any empirical or scientific data. She does not know the future of the universe any more than she knows what might happen tomorrow in a cafe in the city of San Francisco. Second, her pronouncement that it won't matter that we ever lived and that we will be utterly forgotten is also unscientific hyperbole. From where is she deriving her data that it will not finally matter that we ever lived? How does she know that our deeds here on Earth will be utterly forgotten? Nothing in her astrophysics tells her any of this. Yet this has been the continual theme told to us by popularizers of science for decades now. We are cosmically insignificant. Our lives here won't ultimately matter in the grand scheme of things. We are just solar detritus with no purpose or intention behind our existence. We are just a thin biological film milling about on a solitary lump of rock and metal we've called Earth. There is no purpose, rhyme, design, meaning, or reason for our being here. While I do not mean to implicate Dr. Mack directly for the great despair through which our culture seems to be passing at the moment, but I cannot help but wonder how this repeated message of cosmic insignificance coming from the scientific community has contributed to our culture's burgeoning sense of futility and meaninglessness. If God does not exist, then we must somehow work out ultimate meaning and purpose for ourselves, help ourselves, define ourselves, promote ourselves, constantly reinvent and rebrand ourselves and our identities, looking to ourselves as the center of our own little universes. It is an incredibly impossible and exhausting burden. So why then are people cheering for an eclipse? Who is listening? At least with sports teams, we know the athletes hear us. But to whom or to what are we cheering when it comes to celestial events? If we are insignificant, if all of this is just one big unintended consequence of random impersonal forces, what's to cheer about? Why are some even moved to tears by an eclipse? And what then is the point of science at all? A purposeful and intentional concerted effort to study the universe that is itself impersonal, unintentional, chaotic, and without purpose or intent? Scripture provides us with a completely different story. Science exists primarily because the first natural philosophers in the Western tradition understood that God created the world to be understood. Great are the works of the Lord, the psalmist writes. They are studied by all who delight in them. 
This verse from the 111th Psalm is carved over the door of the Cavendish Laboratory at Cambridge, indelibly affixed to the collective memories of Cambridge students by James Clerk Maxwell, whose pioneering work at Cambridge led to the discovery that electricity and magnetism are really just light itself. People cheer because it is the most appropriate response to witnessing a declaration of the glory of God. As the 19th Psalm says, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the expanse proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours forth speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. Also, our lives are indeed significant. We are created in God's image. The works we do here on earth are not insignificant and will not utterly be forgotten. With our lives, with our work, and with our deeds, we are either leading people toward or away from the God who created everything. It is a sobering thought. Psalm 50 verse 6 says that the heavens declare God's righteousness. Of course, you're not going to get the gospel from looking at an eclipse by any means, but an eclipse certainly can begin a journey to the foot of the cross for someone who does not know God, and it can be a reminder of God's glory to those of us who are known of Christ. We are finally not our own. We were created by Christ Jesus, the same one who made the sun, moon, and the stars. He has good works prepared for all of us. Come and see. Well, good heavens, Wayne, it's about time. And uh, did you know, coming up here in just a day or two, we're going to have a syzygy. A syzygy? Okay, what's that? You know that? what a syzygy uh, is? I don't remember. <laughs> I was reminded of this uh, in preparation for our talk tonight. Uh, it is. It has three definitions. It's a noun. But the one that uh, concerns us the most is the definition that says, the configuration of the sun moon and earth lying in a straight line okay that's a syzygy oh how about that word it's got three y's in it s-y-z yes y-g-y yeah i think that's how you say it syzygy i'm pretty sure i think so yeah, syzygy that's i think so but uh, anyway, we're going to have a syzygy here real soon. Uh, and, uh, other, otherwise, it's known as an eclipse. An eclipse. We are, uh, uh, speaking of eclipse, I have a dad joke for you, too. Not only do I have that fancy word, uh, but I have a dad joke about eclipses. Okay. You ready for that one? Go ahead. Okay. How does the barber shut out sunlight? Um... I don't know. He makes a curtain out of hair or something. He clips. He clips. <laughs> he clips. Okay. Sorry, everybody. Yeah. <laughs> we should sell dad joke insurance for our <laughs> podcast. <laughs> Be protected from my corny puns. We wouldn't make very much with the No, we wouldn't. Jokes, uh, <laughs> no, probably not. Uh, but uh, a syzygy, an eclipse. Wayne, what's going on? What's happening? What's shaking this Saturday? Now, if you're in Texas... Or Colorado, uh, or the southwest corner of Colorado. Uh, much of central Utah, a little bit of northeastern corner of Nevada, and uh, parts of Oregon. 
you're going to see the uh, ring of fire if you're on the path of totality, or you're going to see a partial eclipse. We here in the Dallas-Fort Worth area are going to see about 80, 75 to 80 percent of this eclipse. But if you're in South Texas around the San Antonio area, if you're in uh, southwest corner of Colorado, if you're in Albuquerque, New Mexico, you're going to see a dazzling show. Uh, if you're in central Utah, uh, northern Nevada, or southern parts of southern southwest Oregon, you're going to see the whole thing. You're in the 100% zone. Yeah. And this starts this starts Saturday on the West Coast, and uh, it will be over the Gulf of Mexico by noon, I believe, uh, sometime central time. So um, uh, Saturday here in Texas, we should have good weather So uh, to see it, but we're only going to see it partially, so if you do look at it... Uh, be, uh, be careful. So, yeah, uh, in fact, sure. I think we should emphasize safety in this, Dan. A partial eclipse like this is the kind of thing where people can easily hurt their eyes <clears throat> if they're not careful because uh, it's an angular eclipse. So there's a ring of the sun around the moon. The moon does not completely block out the light of the sun. That's so, correct. This is going to be an eclipse where the moon is further away from Earth. And so it will be a little bit smaller than what it would be if it was a total solar eclipse when the moon is closer to us. So, yes, you will see uh, the sunlight will not be completely blocked out. Uh, and if you're in the 100% zone, um, you can go online to NASA or space.com. There's plenty of websites where you can Google the October 2023 annular, A-N-N-U-L-A-R, solar eclipse find out uh, if you're in the path or not. But yes, definitely um, be well prepared. Uh, look at it in a multitude of safe ways. Don't just stare up at it with your hands and the sunglasses that would not be uh, too cogent. Uh, but yes. Wayne, we're going to talk about well, the uh, science of the annular eclipse well, as well. You, you mentioned part of it. The uh, Back in 2017, there was a very good eclipse that was uh, – I think it was a total eclipse. And we, it, it was, was for many parts of, of the our, United States. Beginning of our podcast. Yes, the eclipse of 2017, I think, was the first or second podcast. It was the first one. We did. We did the, the first one. The first one. Yeah. And then we did a second one on Jupiter. Um, but yes, it was an eclipse. And um, coming up in April of next year, right here in the Dallas Fort Worth area, we are going to be in the path of a complete and full solar eclipse, a totality. It's going to go pitch black here in Dallas-Fort Worth on April, I believe, April 8th of next year. Uh, so we don't have to go anywhere, Wayne, to see this. Most people travel all over the world to see these things, and uh, we are fortunate to have Yeah, a, we're very fortunate in Dallas to be right in the path of the totality. It's, uh, that's pretty not, cool. We're not that lucky most of the time. No, no, most people travel. A lot of people, there's uh, what they call a... Space tourism or uh, eclipse tourism, where people plan trips to go halfway across the world to see complete totalities, and uh, not everybody sees a complete totality. I've seen partial ones. With the one in 2017 here in Dallas, it didn't go directly through Dallas, but we did see a partial e eclipse uh, during that time. And uh, I actually put on my uh, my neighbor's welding mask <laughs> with really dark glasses underneath it too. And, uh, and was able to safely view it. That was pretty neat. Um, but to Saturday. I'm not really sure if welding glasses would be um, real good because they probably don't block the light in the right way. But 
No, the ones that I had were uh, was a welding mask. Yeah, and then underneath the welding mask, I wore sunglasses as well. So it was con- it was totally dark. I couldn't see anything until I looked up at the sun, and then when I looked up at the sun, I could barely see the sun even. But, so yeah, was, but uh, I was going to try and describe a, a real simple, safe way to see it. And there is such a thing as special eclipse glasses you can get, but I've I've read that even some of those are not safe. Um, so you kind of have to know what you're doing a little bit. But there's a real safe way. It's where uh, you could take a a piece of printer paper or a piece of paper and uh, eight and a half by eleven paper, I would say, and just cut it in half in the middle. It's uh, you'd have two. Sp- Two pieces, right? And in one piece, you poke a little hole. You might take a little ballpoint pen, make a hole like the end of a ballpoint pen or something. And when you when the eclipse happens, you go out and put your back to the sun, and then you hold the the, the paper with the hole in it up, kind of by your shoulders. And then you hold the other piece down below it so that the, the sunlight goes through the hole and then it uh, shines on the, the lower piece of paper. And that way you're not looking at the sun. You're looking away from it. But you'll, you'll see a, a little image on the uh, paper that way and it's real safe. There's also a, uh, a NASA website where they describe a way that you can take a box and do the basically the same thing like with a box and some aluminum foil and um, kind of set up the same thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think the temptation is most people want to look at the natural phenomenon uh, up close and personal um, with uh, the glasses or a filter. But again, we can't emphasize enough how uh, how absolutely utterly important it is to have. Uh, uh, the ability to look at this uh, with with the utmost of safety because staring at the sun for any length of time uh, can cause permanent eye damage and uh, so it's not a uh, not a laughing or joking matter it is very serious so please if you're going to look at it make sure your eyes are protected or do what Wayne says and look at the piece of paper it, it works it yeah, does work do not expect sunglasses to be enough it will not be enough absolutely will not be enough um, but uh, this Saturday coming up. I mean, even if you're listening to this after Saturday the 14th, you can go online and see videos that people have taken of the eclipse. If you have clouds in your area or you're just not in the region where it's going to happen, you can see the spectacular videos that many astronomers will take with filters and see just how phenomenal the uh, ring of fire is. That uh, reminds me of that uh, Johnny Cash song, of course. I fell into a burning ring of fire. I went down, <laughs> the flames went higher, or something like that. I forget, but uh, yeah, this, uh, yes, uh, the, the, the burning ring of fire. Yeah. Right, uh, it's a beautiful sight. The the, the uh, shadow of the moon is surrounded by the uh, outline of the sun, and uh, and there's there's something another thing that can be seen in an annular eclipse that is uh, something that you don't always see in eclipses. It's called Bailey's beads. Bailey's beads, Wayne. Why don't you just lay down the law of Bailey's beads? What are Bailey's beads? Well, if you imagine the uh, the shadow of the moon is blocking uh, most of the sun, but not all of it. If you have a place um, 
where they if if the annular ring is a little bit off center and you have a place where the uh um the edge of the shadow is very close to the edge of the of the sun you you have light that goes across the surface of the moon and it gets obstructed and scattered some by the mountains and valleys on the moon so uh, the Bailey's beads are looks like uh, bright dots along the edge of the sun because it's getting um, blocked and and reflected a little bit from the uh, and scattered some by the topography of the moon, the, the high and low places on the moon around the edge. The mountain ranges, so the, the valleys and peaks of the moon, the sunlight peaks through that, and that's what uh, causes the beads. And then yeah. it comes to a point where it looks like a, a diamond ring sometimes even. Yeah, and there's certain places that make especially nice little Bailey's beads. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> like like close to uh, certain craters will do it really good. Right. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, so it's going to be a it's going to be a good show again if we haven't already said it. Uh, eye protection, eye protection, eye protection. Please be where don't you dare look at this through a telescope without the proper filters either because it's just like uh, remember when you were kids and you went outside and you burned leaves with a micro uh, a uh, magnifying glass <laughs> and you'd focus sunlight in on a burning leaf or something and it would start to smoke well that was just imagine that's your eye <laughs> when you look through a telescope uh, without a sun filter you don't want to do that yeah you don't want that to be your eye <laughs> so um uh, so there, this is not a total eclipse. This is an annular eclipse, and that is because the moon's orbit uh, is slightly eccentric around the Earth. Um, it's not exactly a circle, but uh, it it is a um, uh, what they call an ellipse. It's an elliptical orbit. It's a kind of a, a smashed circle or a little bit of an oval. So that the moon is at times closer to us and at times further away. And so when it passes in front of the sun, uh, when it is further away from us, that is when we have the annual eclipse. Now, um, in, in science terms, this is fascinating to me and it's something that the Babylonians discovered thousands of years ago. It's called a Saros cycle. I had to look it up again. I do remember learning about it, and I'm not sure if we talked about it on our very first podcast, but um, basically, I will, I will be as super simple as I can with this. Uh, Babylonians realizes that eclipses come in cycles that are 6,585 days long. That translates to 18 years, some odd days. I think it's 18, 18 years, 11 days, something like that. Um, but every 6,585 days, the cycle of eclipses repeats. So uh, starting from October the 14th, this Saturday, in 18 years and 11 and one-third days, 6,585 days from Saturday the 14th, we will have another exact annular eclipse. It will repeat itself. That is the gist of the sorrow cycle, that the eclipse patterns happen, uh, repeat themselves every 6,585 days. Isn't that amazing? 
Okay, I, I didn't remember That's that. That's just a fascinating thing that was discovered thousands of years ago. And to me, and I'm sure to you as well, Wayne, that if God doesn't exist, this is just a coincidence, right? That this was so predictably patterned to such a degree. But here we have this pattern in numerical form of the moon repeating itself in terms of eclipses, eclipsing the sun every 18 years and change. How about that? I mean, you really have to be paying attention to the sky to even notice that. Yeah. But once you find that, it's just an uncanny cyclical, and it's so accurate, Wayne, that that astronomers can predict with a great great degree of accuracy eclipses because of this. Yeah. I was uh, reading, Dan, about some of the oldest records of eclipses and the oldest one they they know of i think with it uh, goes back to china and they think it was in during the time of confucius and it, it was in 2137 bc is when they think it was <clears throat> and but for years people didn't know exactly what an eclipse was <laughs> and so they, uh, there were times when in, ancient, in the ancient world where uh, they took it as a, an omen of something, you know. Like so, there was at least two or three cases in history where there was uh, wars that or battles that were stopped or something because they saw an eclipse and they thought it was a, a bad omen for them to keep fighting. Um, so, like in in 585 BC, there's a people called the Lydians and the Medes that were fighting, and uh, Greek historian Herodotus wrote about it, and he said, as the balance had not inclined in favor of either nation, another engagement took place in the sixth year of the war, in the course of which, just as the battle was growing warm. Day was suddenly turned into night. When the Lydians and Medes observed the change, they ceased fighting and were alike anxious to conclude peace. So they've been fighting all day, or most of the most of the day, and the eclipse happens, it goes dark, and they they're afraid to keep fighting. Wow! If it were only that easy wow. to stop a war today, Dan, it's almost like science prides itself on sort of demystifying these celestial events as being nothing more than the product of, of natural forces and not any kind of supernatural agency. But uh, uh, despite our belief in science and what it can do and all the wonders that it has uncovered about the universe, it has not in the least removed any supernatural agency from these wondrously heavenly displays of things. But you're right, wouldn't it be nice if we could stop and look up at the heavens and marvel at what what it is and who it points to, and uh, maybe that would... Yeah, and of course in Genesis, and we've mentioned this before, but uh, it, it talks about uh, the sun and the moon and the stars marking seasons and days and years. Um, but you know, it doesn't say anything in Genesis or in the Bible that we should be afraid of the stars. Mm-hmm. And it, it in the Old Testament, it emphasized that that people should not worship the stars. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> the stars were never connected to any deity in the uh, 
the biblical view of things. Right. They didn't represent. But, but in, um, and they were in the ancient world. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Many. It's almost like in Genesis one fourteen, an afterthought, and he created the stars also. Uh, and <coughs> yes, the idea in Genesis is a, a a demystification of and almost like a prohibition and a and demolishing of the ancient pagan cosmologies where the gods either inhabited or were in the created order and people worshipped the stars as though the stars themselves or the sun and the moon were gods. And uh, Genesis kind of undoes all that and says, God, these are creations of God. They are not in themselves gods and should not be worshipped as gods. But uh, you can understand, though, Wayne, I am not excusing paganism, but you can understand people's impulse to want to worship creation because it is so wonderful and high above us and majestic and regular and predictable and beautiful. It does look divine in some sense, but that from a Christian perspective, of course, the divinity of, there is no divinity in these things. They are reflections of God's glory, but God is not in the stuff. He upholds it, he creates it, but he is wholly separate from it. And uh, that is an important distinction. Yeah, and there's there's another kind of extreme people go to today where um, we know what an eclipse is, right? So, um sometimes and you read this from scholars who try to relate things um to the bible in a way that isn't really right so they will think that certain things the bible describes are talking about an eclipse when it's really not and they're they're really trying to explain away what the bible says because they think that um they they have trouble believing in miracles in the in the Bible, mm-hmm. and so there are things that are sometimes taken as being referring to an eclipse when it, it doesn't really fit in an eclipse. They take it at that the Bible is describing an eclipse uh, as if people didn't know what an eclipse was, and uh, first of all, people did know what an eclipse was mm-hmm. even in pretty ancient times, uh, and. Uh, really, it ends up kind of uh, an effort to explain the way miracles. In a sense, yes. So, for example, right. for example, at the crucifixion, hmm. the crucifixion, um, we know the time of the month it was. It was in the middle of the month on the fourteenth day of the, of the Jewish calendar, and at that time of the month, it's impossible for it to be an eclipse because the moon is in the wrong position. Mm. And even the Roman records got this wrong. Rome, there were Roman records about Jesus' crucifixion that said that there was an eclipse that made the sky go dark for a while. Mm. And but it doesn't fit an eclipse because it was for uh, oh, what is something like three hours or something when mm-hmm. it, that it was dark, mm-hmm. and that doesn't happen in an eclipse. And then then there's uh, things like the uh, long day of Joshua that. The Old Testament describes. We had a podcast about that, Dan. You mm-hmm. remember? And uh, people think that was an eclipse. And there's various things that people wrongly try to relate it as an eclipse when the Bible doesn't really describe it that way. Last Christmas, we did a uh, podcast on the uh, Star of Bethlehem, 
And yeah. we had a similar approach to where a lot of people were trying to explain this star naturally, if you will. What natural occurrence could this have been? But uh, your conclusion as well as mine is that looking for a natural explanation of what this star is does tend to or does diminish the miraculous annunciation to these yeah. wise men of this star. It doesn't behave like anything in the sky that we know of. No. And uh, so likewise, too, uh, well-intended well Christians looking for natural explanations of miraculous occurrences do tend to dis- diminish the uh, the miraculous. Um, Wayne, you know I just interviewed uh, Justin Brierly uh, for our other podcast uh, from uh-huh. Un- Unbelievable. He did that show for 17 years and talked to many atheists and skeptics. And uh, Justin was telling me the story about uh, – a social critic in the UK who's not exactly – who's not a Christian. He calls himself a Christian atheist. I believe his name is Douglas Murray. But he told Justin, he said, yo all, you, you Christians need to keep Christianity weird. <laughs> he says, don't try to make it look like uh, everything else around you. The distinctiveness of the Christian faith is what draws people to it. Uh, but when you go enculturating yourself and making you look like the rest of the world, it's no longer attractive. It's just like everything else. And uh, I so, really like that statement. I do too. I, really, I thought it was. Great. I really like that. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, we want to keep Christianity weird. It, it's it's full of wonderful stories that have no natural explanation to them. I mean, the central core of our hope, Wayne, is a resurrection—a guy rising from the dead, not just any guy. But right. uh, the Lord Jesus himself, uh, fully God, fully man, rising from the dead on the third Jewish day. Um, but when he died, as you said, uh, the sun went dark for three hours at, at, at noon. And uh, mm-hmm. this is not mm-hmm. anything that is uh, uh, an eclipse. Eclipses lasts, depending on where you are, and uh, I think, what, seven to ten minutes tops, depending on where you are. So, um, you know, know, it's just not, as you said, the moon is not in the right place for that particular time of year. But um, I think what, for me, I mean, it's not predicting the future. I'm not, we're not saying that uh, this annular eclipse that's going over a swath of the United States uh, this weekend is uh, predicting any biblical event to, to begin. Some people will inevitably say this, that this is a harbinger of something to come. And that's not what it's for. That's not what that's astrology, and we're not advocating astrology. But I do say that uh, that these remind us of God's glory. I mean, that's what the heavens declare is the glory of God. And so, when the sun goes dark temporarily in the middle of the day, I mean, if nothing else, it reminds me of the very event uh, at the crucifixion, and then what will happen someday that that none of us know: the sun, the moon will be turned to blood, and the sun will be turned to sackcloth and will no longer give its light. Um, And God will eventually do away with the sun and the moon because the new creation will have no need of this light because Jesus will be our light in the new heavens and the new earth. So these celestial events remind us of God's glory, I think. Yeah, so the one you're referring to is from Matthew 24, I think, Mm -hmm. where Jesus is talking about his, his return, his second coming, and I'm not sure if that could be an eclipse, but I tend to think it's more likely to be miraculous. I would but, think so. Um, right. I would think so as well. Yeah. But these, these events remind us of what Scripture does say, 
that one day, Wayne, the sun is going to be no more and the moon as well. That these uh, governors of day and night, like Genesis, I love it. I love what Genesis says. It, 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 it doesn't say, Wayne, and I've, I don't know, I've never asked you about this. So maybe I have and I've forgotten, which is probably more the case. But when God creates the lights, the sun and the moon, he doesn't say to give life on the earth. He says to give light, light on the earth. On the earth. Yeah. And yes. we tend to, in the secular science, say that life is dependent on sunlight. I mean, this is a primary objection of skeptics that I talk to often. How can there be any kind of life at all without the sun? S-U-N. And my cheeky answer is, well, it's not a matter of the S-U-N sustaining life. It's a matter of the S-O-N sustaining yes. life. And so God doesn't give the sun and the moon for life to exist on earth. God gives the sun and the moon for light on the earth to govern the day and the night. Yes, and in, in Genesis, Dan, uh, God is the source of light. Right. So everything comes from God, everything that we depend on physically for our life. That's correct. Light and, and all the resources and, and the materials we have on the earth that we use. Right. It all comes from God. And in Genesis, there was light even before there was the sun. That's right. It, it's supposed to point us back and remind us of God. Right. So and, the, and the order, the created order is, is supposed to remind us of the, the order that God created. God's light, sunlight, moonlight, starlight. It's yeah. all a reflection of God's light. Right. And we too, Wayne, this yeah. is a wonderful thing in Matthew. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, you are the light of the world. Uh, a city on a hill cannot be hidden. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And so the moon is a reflection of sunlight. Sunlight is a reflection and a reminder of, of God's light. I mean, we were talking earlier about how we can't look at the sun and uh, and without bringing harm to our eyes. And remember what God says to Moses in Exodus 33. Moses says, show me your glory. And God says, nobody can see my face and live. <laughs> so God's mm. light is mediated to us through what he has made. And uh, I think it's fascinating. I really do think it's, it is really super fascinating to, to consider that, that what God has made reveals to us his invisible attributes. And think about, Wayne, and I know you're familiar even more so than I am with, with Old Testament and especially in the realm of creation. You've done a ton of science work in that area and the physics and, and the theology behind it and have given talks on it. But one thing that has impressed me so much, and this has really helped me to broaden and appreciate my understanding of, of um, the Old Testament and what Jesus says about uh, his return, that... Notice in Genesis, he says that the sun and the moon govern the day and the night. And mm -hmm. poetically, that people, like po politicians, kings, presidents, queens, political leaders, are sometimes poetically referred to as sun and moon. They, too, are governors 
they govern. God gives them, as he said to Pilate, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. And so what does Pilate's authority, his governing, do temporarily to Jesus? He blocks out his light. Through Pilate, Jesus is crucified. Through Pilate, that darkness temporarily comes over the earth. Through the governing authorities, Christianity is often persecuted and attempted to be snuffed out. The governors try to snuff out the light that is Christianity through people. But it's only a temporal prevailing. Eventually, the light breaks forth again and again and again, and there's not a political leader or a potentate who has been successful in snuffing out Christianity. It always rises. And I think huh. that's fascinating that there's not a there's not a single earthly governor, there's not a single celestial event, there's nothing in science or history or philosophy that has snuffed out, explained away, or done away with God's light that he has given to us through what he has made and through what he has written. Right. So uh, it should be reminders to us of God. It's it's not um it's not that because we have our science that rules out God. It's that the order should remind us of God. That's right. Um, getting back to, just for a second, Wayne, getting back to that uh, the eclipse of 2017 that started our podcast over six years ago, which is incredible to me. I can't believe we're still doing this. Yes. Um, <laughs> that eclipse was had a, had a progenitor. It, in August, if you rewind the clock... There was a similar eclipse in August of 1999. Now, what's interesting, Wayne, here's, the, here's, the, here's where the uh, one-third of the day, something like that. I'm getting the math wrong. I apologize to all those who are very specific about this. But here, here's the, the twist. So that eclipse in 1999 didn't happen in the exact same place because the Earth turned an extra one-third. And so that eclipse was over the Pacific and the Middle East. And so in 2017, the Earth turned a little bit, and lo, it was over the United States, but it was the same basic pattern as it was 18 years, one-third days prior. Hmm. So that's the, that's the sorrow cycle. I'm just getting back to that, uh, that issue. I may be explaining the science very poorly there. I'm sorry, but you can go up and look up the sorrow cycle in relation to eclipses. Um, and you brought up earlier, Wayne, and I wanted to, to, to jump on this before I forget. You brought up earlier the, the, the mythologies and the stories and the ancient tales of, of eclipses. Um, there's, there's a thing called, in, in, I think it's, it, it, it may be Chinese, it's in the ancient Near East, or the ancient Far East, uh, of, uh, and it may not just be limited to the East, but tales of the sun being swallowed by a monster or a creature of some kind, a dragon. Um, I think it's in, in Chinese lore. I'm not sure exactly. But uh, the, the, the idea is that there are nodes. And these nodes are where the moon, the moon is tilted at five degrees above what we call the, um, the line, what do you call the uh, line of the planets and the sun and the sky? The, what do we call that? The ecliptic. The ecliptic. Yeah. Right. So if you look up at the sky at night and you see the pattern of, of the moon, of the stars, uh, of the sun, uh, of the planets. If you follow the planet's motion, there's an ecliptic. And it's a 23 and a half degrees tilt. The moon is at any given time five degrees above 
or five degrees below that ecliptic. And of course, the ecliptic is the path that the sun follows primarily. And so when the moon descends from five degrees above the ecliptic, it can block out the sun. There can be lunar and solar eclipses at that time. And the moon can also rise. The moon can be below the ecliptic and it can rise above the ecliptic. And when it passes the ecliptic from the lower portion, that's also a node. A node is when the moon crosses over the Earth's ecliptic. And that's what creates eclipses. And so there's either a rising or a descending or an ascending node. The moon can either be in a, an ascending mode or it can be in a descending mode. Yeah. So in ancient Chinese mythology, uh, these nodes or eclipses, when the moon passes over the ecliptic and lines up with the earth, we get a syzygy. Um, in ancient lore, these nodes were believed to be like the dragon's head where the dragon is swallowing uh, the moon or the moon or the sun. And so uh, there's a lot, of, a lot of fascinating ancient explanations for what this phenomenon is, why it happens. But I think another one, just, just naturally speaking, is that the sun is 400 times bigger than the moon, but the sun is also 400 times further away from Earth than the moon is. So they look to be the same size in the sky most of the time. And that's why we have the eclipse. Yes, so we're very fortunate to be able to have total eclipses, and in most places in the universe, this would be impossible. Uh, this is this is a feature of design. It is. Uh, this is designed by God that we could do this. Right, right. And Wayne, have you ever heard anybody <coughs> anybody object to the idea when you bring up design? You get a lot of skeptics that object to the idea of design because, uh, well. This is a poor design, or or something like that, where they're just like, well, look at all the suffering and everything in the world, and how could this be designed? Um, but what's interesting about that objection to me always is, okay, you make a universe, <laughs> you make a planet and suns <laughs> and stars, and you make eclipses and you make things line up, you make syzygies. Go ahead and make a syzygy. <laughs> and when you've arranged your moon, Earth. Uh, sun uh, little system, let me know. I'll come and check it out and see how habitable it might be. <laughs> so, uh, you know, anytime anyone wants to object to God's design, I think first and foremost, I'm going to ask them about their uh, universe-making resume. <laughs> When's the last time you made a universe? <laughs> yeah, but I think I would go back to um, looking at it the way Genesis goes through it because, okay, God made the world good, but human beings sinned, and so that the sin of human beings didn't just change us; it changed the world. It changed. It had the an universe. impact on creation. Yeah, it had an impact on creation. We we're put here uh, to live in it, and our sin affected the the universe around us. And and so here we are; we're fallen, imperfect creatures. But God didn't just give up on us. He gave us a chance to learn and come back to him, and that's what we have in Christ is a way to mm. believe and come back into a relationship with him. Right. So even though the world is not perfect, uh, it's it's imperfect because of sin in the world mostly, and right. then there are some things that God just controls, and I think the, the harsh things about nature are something that, uh, are to to 
help us have a more motivation than we naturally would to come mm-hmm. to God and search for God and seek God. Because mm-hmm. it, it, we are naturally selfish and we don't look for God and we don't uh, we don't want to deal with Him. It's our natural tendency. But God is God has made some suffering and hard things in in this life so that it will help people be motivated to seek for him. Yeah, we call um, we tend to call evil good and good evil. We tend to yeah. be more comfortable with our evil and sin. I know I do. And we think God just we just take him for granted and his forgiveness for granted and and you know when we have storms here in Texas or we have astronomical events such as this uh, wonderful annular eclipse coming up or we have earthquakes or tornadoes or natural disasters or any kind of natural event that is far beyond our control it does humble us and it does frighten us i'm i'm a, I'm a scaredy cat when it comes to storms and uh, it's always humbling uh, wind rain hail and it's always a chance for human beings to help each other out so mm-hmm. we, that's something we need to learn Right, except uh, don't be Job's friends, right? Job's friends didn't help him out very much. <laughs> yes. At uh, first they did. They sat with him and mourned with him for a while. But then in the end of Job's suffering, it is a very strange, you know, sort of a keep it weird sort of strange, to us anyway, that God starts to ask Job a series of questions beginning with creation. So he doesn't even address the whole Satan thing. He doesn't tell Job the whole upfront deal, as far as we know. But what you have in in Job is basically an extended commentary on creation. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? When the sons of God shouted for joy and all the morning stars sang together? Do you know the ordinances of the heavens? Can you guide a constellation in its season? You know, that kind of thing. The answer from God was more uh, something to help Job grasp who God is, not mm. not to explain why. It yeah. wasn't a direct answer to the why. It was more of who who is God and who am I? Yeah. I was just pondering questions today of some things that had happened in my life recently. You know, and I wasn't demanding God why answers, but certainly that is a natural question to ask. Why, God, did you let this happen why couldn't you have shown me this or why couldn't we have done it this way or why couldn't we have done it this way and i wrote a whole article about uh looking back on my life about how um god led me even though i didn't know it was his voice or his leading and uh i'm just wondering well why did i wonder why god did it that way and i don't need to really know that i mean it, it would be interesting to know but what would i do with that information god has given me enough information. He's given all of us enough information to know um, how to negotiate uh, through this world. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's an interesting issue, Wayne, and this, I think, will help us to transition into our next topic um, that you want to talk about, and I'm excited to hear more about because you dove into this more than I did. But, uh, you know, our book that came out a couple of years ago is called The Story of the Cosmos. And uh, it's our conviction that uh, the cosmos tells a story and uh, it's not in the kind of vernacular that uh, your mom reads a bedtime story to you but in some sense it's a lot different of course but in another sense it's very similar that god declares in psalm 50 verse 6 the heavens declare his righteousness in psalm 19 
The heavens declare his glory. Isaiah 40:26 tells us to look up and consider all these stars who made these stars. And of course, as we just mentioned that uh, God asks Job to consider creation. Um, and so God has written a story in creation and its story has gone out throughout the whole world, even though it has no voice, no sound, no speech, but its language is universally understood, Wayne. And what's interesting to me is that modern science loves to tell the story about discovery, which we're going to talk about here in just a minute, a new discovery. It loves to tell the story, but then when it tells the story of our, when, when like people at NASA, which, um, we ask them, well, why did we go to this asteroid or this planet or this star and why did we send this telescope up there? Oftentimes, Wayne, the question gets back to we want to know where we came from, how it all began. And it's almost like they're looking in the wrong place. I don't think that that, uh, the fundamental periodic table of the elements, though they tell a story, are really going to give people the knowledge and information that they think they can glean from these things. I mean, rocks do tell a story, but they don't tell the full and complete story. You're not going to get the Gospel of John from carbon from an asteroid. But carbon from an asteroid does give you clues. And so it's interesting to me that modern science, with all of its intent and purpose in studying the language of the heavens, turns around and tells us, Wayne, that our lives have no story, that there is no ultimate story to the cosmos. There's no purpose. There's no teleology to the the cosmos at all. Many modern cosmologists and astronomers have said and gone on off record have said that they don't see any purpose or point to the universe, fascinating though it is, and how strange it is to devote an entire discipline like science to, to something, something that is intentional. Science is intentional. And yet turn around and say, there's nothing intentional about the cosmos. Because if they said or conceded that there was some kind of purpose or teleology to the universe, that opens wide the door for God's existence. And I think a lot of non-believers don't want that divine foot to make its way into the door of the laboratory. Yeah, it's... um Maybe they're not looking the right way. Something they're they're missing something. I think. 